Mark's been instrumental in leading a lot of both the HCV mono-infected and co-infected trials. And I think what he's going to try to do today is take us through some cases on co-infection with our panel. Mark? Great. Well, thank you. While our panel is assembling, um, what we're going to try to do today is talk about uh, really two different uh, patient cases over the next uh, 40 minutes. And I'm not actually going to use didactic slides to show you data. I'm going to rely on our panel uh, to share these, uh, the data with you at these places. So we'll go through some cases and certainly uh, get opinions from everyone on these. And feel free to ask questions as well as uh, use the microphone in the middle as well. So while we're getting assembled, I'll start by describing the first patient. A 45-year-old man with HIV originally, before he came to the U.S., was born in East Asia. HIV is well controlled. He's on a regimen of Fibrin's, Sinophia, FTC, CD4 count of over 500. His last HIV RNA was about 68 copies per ml. Was doing just fine. And then in the summer of 2011, his primary HIV care provider uh, noted that his ALT was 600, had previously been normal. He felt well. He had some initial testing done. His hepatitis B surface antigen was negative. His antibody for hepatitis C was also non-reactive. So the first opportunity to vote, what would you order next? And there's obviously a whole plethora of potential choices. I'll give you four. Uh, one is HPV DNA. Uh, two is HCV RNA. Three is a brief alcohol screening. And four, a iron or ferritin level. So go ahead and vote, and then we'll get our panel to uh, comment on this. So uh, we'll start down, start down the end with Arthur. Um, so patient walks in with a elevated ALT, uh, pre normal. What, what would you have selected? Right. So uh, I would have selected a Hep C RNA. Um, as you know, I, I'm a big fan of acute Hep C. Or I'm sorry, it's happening to patients, but uh, I did. You know, it's it's a favorite topic of mine at least. And um, one thing to remember is that there's a seronegative window where there's a Hep C uh, antibody that's negative and the RNA is positive for a time. And um, that window is actually extended in HIV-positive patients, um, particularly MSM, where the seroconversion um, can occur 90 days after um, initial infection uh, compared to a normally you know, four to six week window for if there's in the absence of HIV. Um, so yeah, no, I would definitely order a hep C RNA. In this uh, instance, the hep B DNA um, in the presence of a negative surface antigen, uh, while you may do it perhaps to be thorough, I think it would be highly unlikely to be positive. Moreover, the patient is on tenofovir-based regimen. So, uh, so I believe there would be a protective effect from that. Uh, the yeah. data right, exactly. Suggested. Suggests that there is a protective effect from being on a, uh, antiviral with anti-hep B activity. Well, I think the other point about B on this patient is, I, I didn't tell you this, but you know he should have been uh, checked up to SP surface antibody and vaccinated at some point. And hopefully in his medical record, there's a hepatitis B surface antibody reactive noted somewhere of vaccination. Now, it's not always complete. But I think you're, you think you're right. Tenofovir uh, may provide some protection. I actually had a patient recently who was actually HIV uh, negative who was getting a uh, sexually active man who was getting HIV screened every six months at a, uh, a clinic in town that does such things and acquired acute hepatitis B. 
And nobody along the way, a 55-year-old man, sexually active, multiple male partners, no one had ever thought to check his vaccination status and offer him vaccination. So he uh, got acute hepatitis B, uh, turned a bit yellow, got kind of sick. We ended up giving him tenofovir to help him uh, seroconvert a bit quicker. He did. He probably would have done it without that. Uh, but then he asked me, the next question he asked me was, well, can I stay on this tenofovir? Uh, right. <laughs> because, you know, I'm still, so, and, and I thought there would be perhaps a lesson learned there about, uh, about uh, using condoms, but perhaps not so much. Right. Um, so getting back to this case, what other, I, I didn't talk about hepatitis uh, A or other factors, and, and how about E? I, I've, uh, at, our case, at our center, every time we present a case, uh, someone brings up E. Is it worth checking for? Did he recently return from France? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> is it something that when you're uh, pimping the residents on rounds that you bring up E? Is it a realistic possibility? We, you know, E is so uncommon. It's when you run out of everything else. Yeah. Don't forget it. And, and it won't be the going away. You know, it might be acute. But I think you've got to rule out other causes of acute hepatitis as well as drugs and Tylenol. And alcohol won't do this unless he's using Tylenol as well because it drops the level at which you get toxic. Mm -hmm. And hemochromatosis won't do it, but ferritin will be high because it's an acute phase reactor. Yeah, and certainly, given that he's in Baltimore, it would also increase his risk. But uh, I think a syphilis titer in a patient like this, uh, we've had several cases of syphilitic hepatitis in the past mm -hmm. year at Duke. So I think that the differential is to, should be broad, and E would yeah. be at the very bottom of that yeah. list, I think. Now, for the record, he's actually not from Baltimore. He's from a large city just south of Baltimore, ah. which is uh, called Washington. So uh, <laughs> the, the other point I'd like to bring up is that, of course, uh, uh, ALT of 600 is going to precipitate a lot of testing and callbacks and whatnot, even if he's feeling fine. Uh, many patients with acute hepatitis C will have a minor elevation in LFT, something that you may not be too thrilled about, calling the patient back for more testing. They feel fine and whatnot. Uh, you can say that maybe it's the antiretrovirals, but in reality, a lot of those patients have been on those regimens for a long time, and it's very unlikely. So, uh, And if you wait till the next three months, or some of us are extending our HIV visits to every five, six months, then, um, then you may miss the window in which there can be an intervention. So call people back for those ALT rises. Uh, many of those turn out to be hep C or something. So Mary, any value in an ultrasound of his liver at this point? I can tell you got one, because everyone, no, everyone does. Everybody gets an <laughs> right. ultrasound because it's a knee jerk. But actually, Bud Chiari is something you're thinking could be useful in an ultrasound. It's not going to be a mass. Could it be Bud Chiari? Will it, he should be yellow with ascites and not high enzymes. That doesn't quite fit. So yeah, it's just more money to the radiology. OK. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, So he did, in fact, have a hepatitis CRNA done that was detected. And it was quite high. Um, he tried to take a history. He says he knows exactly how he got it, when he got it, the details of which I'm honestly not uh, really never was able to fully elicit. But now he's got a reactive antibody. He's got genotype 1A. LT has settled down to a around 300. Uh, so uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll give you some choices as to what to do, and then I'll come back to our panel. So what would you do next? Uh, one, IL-28B genotype testing. 
uh, two, and I'll, I'll, I'll stipulate that he's been, that that value's been confirmed. He's definitely got RNA uh, confirmed at the same time. Treat with peganoferon and ribavirin. Treat with telapavir, peganoferon and ribavirin. Treat with bocephavir, peganoferon and ribavirin, or stop his antiretroviral therapies because of potential toxicity from his ephedrine-based regimen. So go ahead, Vern. Uh, well. No, he's been he's been diagnosed. Well, it's, we're now at about um, it's now about the summertime, so July. It's now about October-ish in, in this time frame. So that's three months. No, it's, you know yeah. it's, it's, the dates aren't really clear, Marion. When he got it, he but, knows when he got it. He knows who he was with. Look, he just wants your opinion. Okay, just pick one through four. He, he's coming to you. <laughs> It's, uh, he's still very early in the phase after his infection. So we're now talking around three months. So a, a bit of a mix. We've got uh, about almost half one IL-28B testing. Uh, uh, about a third want to treat with peganoferon and ribavirin. Uh, and then if we, if we combine those, we've got maybe, uh, what, almost 19% uh, uh, want to treat with uh, uh, protease plus peganoferin ribavirin. No one thinks it's the antiretroviral. I think Arthur gave that away. So um, let me go, start with our group. Um, IL-28B testing. I'll, I'll go to our, our dookie here. <laughs> Home of the IL-28B test. <laughs> I would actually argue, given that he is of Asian descent, um, you probably have a pretty good idea of what his IL-28B status is. Um, and uh, so I am racially profiling, <laughs> absolutely, in this case. Um, and so while we talked this morning, I think that might be why folks are saying this, about the fact that a IL-28 favorable CC may be more likely to spontaneously clear, what we're also hearing is he's right at that three-month mark. Um, and he's, he's Asian descent, so he may carry it, but uh, is it going to change your mind now that he's already 12 weeks out? So I'm not sure at this point that would play a huge role for me. Well, so I treat him. And then in terms of, so I, let, me, let me focus, a lot of people focused on this 12-week window. Does hepatitis C virus know it's supposed to clear in the 12 weeks? I mean, is it, <laughs> whose clock is this? And Arthur, what are the, are, well, how, the how firm is that timeline? Yeah, yeah, so I think um, the whole definition of acute epsi is what? Basically, the first six months of infection. And we have to make a definition. Otherwise, you can't just say, oh, it's kind of when things are happening, which is kind of the way an immunologist might think about it. Because um, that's when the immune response is kicking in, and that's when patients are clearing. And 80% um, of clearances occur during the first six months after uh, acute acquisition of hepatitis C. So, so the six-month idea is logical. And then when the waiting period sort of came out, that also was just sort of a uh, uh, acknowledgement that spontaneous clearance does occur and that you can save people a lot of treatment, but the 12-week window is highly arbitrary. In my practice, we were actually discussing this after um, the case rounds. We follow the viral loads, look for evidence of clearance, and if there's no evidence by week you know, eight or so um, on the viral loads, I might offer treatment earlier, for instance. So. And does the IL-28B change your willingness to wait? In other words, a CC Arguably, the success rate with uh, therapy after the acute window is it doesn't drop much, and then the, the odds of clearance go up. And, and I should say there are in, in the literature cases of clearance out up to a year. It's, it there doesn't are, always follow are. the counter. Right. I'm just wondering if the, if the IL-28B uh, mm -hmm. would influence your willingness to drag your feet and watch. 
I think I think I'd argue that a cheaper test is a HCV RNA, and you have one when he came in, and now you're some way down the road. And I think that the the greater than two log drop, um, you know, over that four week period can be very very helpful, and is going to trump as we know IL twenty eight, and 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 like I said, it's cheaper. So that's probably what I would argue for to understand whether or not he shows evidence of, you know, improved clearance, and then you may want to give him some time to wait. And if he doesn't, then I think you would consider. Um, making a decision to, to discuss treatment at least. Okay. A question from, sure. A patient who I, I thought I was watching a spontaneous remission. She came in, her enzymes were through the roof, her viral load was high. Two weeks later, everything had dropped down, her ALT was normal, her viral load was down to like a thousand. It, and it kept going down, and then all of a sudden it went back up again. Is mm -hmm. that something that happens yes. routinely? Yeah. Or um, <laughs> very, I, very commonly. I probably made her a little bit excited. And right. I, was I mean, we've had, we've had patients that have gone all the way to undetectable and have even been undetectable months apart. In one instance, I can think of we probably had three months where we checked twice and they were undetectable twice, and then ALTL to just crept up a little bit and it was you know a year later and he finally got another HCVRNA and it was detectable again and we presume it was was not a reinfection we didn't document for sure but Baltimore um, samples injection drug users monthly and they see these fluctuations and even then you might see viral switches where the patient if they're exposing themselves may have a new genotype cheap right yeah but the scenario that you're describing is very common, where yeah. you think you've got it. They think you think you've got the virus, or her immune system has the virus, and then it, it relapses and it's it goes chronic. Well, let's go on. In fact, that uh, so he did have an IL-28B test, and it was CC, um, as Susanna referenced. He's from originally from Hong Kong, where the prevalent studies are at ninety percent. But uh, she saved money. I didn't. Um, the patient was given a prescription, actually, for telapavir, peg interferon, and rotavir. And actually, the way he got to me was he read the label for the telapavir. He got the prescription, he was going to fill it, he read about it, and he said, you know, I probably should drive to Baltimore. And he did. He came up to Baltimore and for a second opinion. And when I saw him, which was around November, we got this hepatitis C RNA level, uh, 2,700. So just as uh, was described by our panelists, it's this coming down. So I gave him a bunch of uh, lab forms and said, uh, just get it done periodically. And we're now out to, so December came back as not detected, April not detected, September now more than a year uh, after his uh, time of infection, which we believe was July, he's still not detected. So he wants to know how you interpret this. So what would you tell him? Uh, one, he spontaneously cleared his acute hepatitis C. Two, he needs further monitoring to ensure that his HCV really has cleared. Or three, it's a lab error and he's still infected. So go ahead and vote. So that's almost 60% uh, want to uh, believe he's cleared his spontaneous, uh, his spontaneous clearance and he's, uh, he's free. Another 40% want to monitor. And, and let me ask, um, uh, David, how would you monitor him in your clinic? It's now. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd probably tell him he's probably spontaneously cleared. 
Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's 10 months now since I think he's been negative almost 10 months. Well, no, 10, yeah, 10 months of negative RNA yep. now. Uh, I mean, I'd feel pretty confident. Would would I get another HCV RNA in the future? I'm certainly if his LFTs went up, I would. If they had completely nor if they hadn't completely if they completely normalized, um, and maybe check one in another year. I, I think he's probably cleared at this point. The, the longest I've seen somebody remain negative and then relapse has been about three months in our clinic. But I'd yeah, feel Arthur, pretty good about it. Uh, Arthur Marion, would you routinely monitor? I have someone who was negative for a year and then relapsed, but he was HIV positive, and I wonder if that's the explanation, because the vast majority of people who are like this, oh, he is too. Yeah. He's HIV. So they wow. don't, I mean, anybody else, the non-HIV positive, really, they really do clear and they don't bounce back. Yeah. I ha at least I haven't seen one. So, uh, so I'd be concerned, yeah. but I'd just monitor. You're going to monitor, monitor him anyway. He's high risk. Or RNA. Or would you repeat an RNA? I'd repeat his RNA six months. I, I start to space it out exactly to six months and then eventually a year, you know, after a couple of months. Do you ever stop? Um, well, the point is he's <laughs> going to, he, you know, once you, you've acquired it, you tend to go back to Do the those same, same things. Yeah. yeah, which is the other important And you have to screen your RNA at that point. Thing to impress upon the patient, right? Yeah, and, and this... Um, almost certainly was a sexual exposure with the yeah. new sexual partner. And so let's go, let's see what happened to this individual. So his uh, primary HIV doctor monitored again, and it was detected at 100 IU per ml. Uh, detected again, done again in January, uh, a million, ALT 64, no symptoms. Uh, denies, it does not report any risk of behaviors, no new sexual partners, no drug use. Uh, no exposure were able to elicit. So he, uh, to my chagrin, uh, came back up to my clinic. I had uh, been somewhat uh, optimistic, uh, but nonetheless, he presented again with uh, these lab data. I brought them with him in his hand. Uh, so what would you tell him? Uh, tell the patient it's a lab error. Uh, two, repeat HCV genotype testing. Three, start peginoferon ribavirin. Four, start tilapavir pegribavirin. Five, observe and wait for sulfosmavir or some other new agent. So go ahead and vote, and then we'll get our panel to, to weigh in. So a lot of people want to repeat the genotype, um, and some want to treat, and there's a, a group that wants to wait. I, I, I guess let me start. Uh, any problem? Will he clear again? Is that what folks want to wait for, see if he clears again, or you think he's got chronic infection now? I think he's got chronic infection. Unless he's lying and he's got reinfected, and that's a great reason to do the genotype. Right. Mm, right. So, yeah. There is that possibility. Certainly, uh, history can be uh, elusive. Yeah. Uh, the truth, it could be elusive in, uh, in clinical practice. So that's in part what the repeat yeah. genotype would be for, to see if it's the same strain. Of course, I'm from the East Coast, and in Baltimore and Washington, 90% of people walk around with 1A. Um, so uh, any enthusiasm for treatment? Anyone using tilapavir for acute hepatitis C? Well, that's a good question. The issue is, if it was acute, and this is just a late lapse into chronicity, then you're going to treat him with triple therapy anyway. If it was acute, he could have rapidly progressive 
liver disease, which has been reported by very few people and not validated by anybody yes, else. Right. I just make that point. Yes. But you'd want to assess his fibrosis level, because if he's F0, he sounds like the sort of guy that sophosphavir was made for, not into, you know, limiting interferon. Um, but I have used uh, triple therapy for acute, even though it's not approved. And so assesses fibrosis. So would people, I'm glad you brought that point up. Um, this about this rapidly progressive liver disease. This year, there's been reports of people progressing within a short time span to liver failure. Uh, so, Mary, you're, you're recommending biopsy for him? No, you're in Baltimore. You can get a fiber scan. We can. We can. Uh, as long as you don't think he's acute, right, or reacute, you know, because so you're going to get a false positive, positive fiber scan. Well, I have to admit, I, I may be gullible, but I actually believe him that he wasn't uh, re-exposed. Uh, that's my, but you know. That's my best guess. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's go on at your time. So he, he continues to have detected RNA. I do believe this was a late uh, recurrence. My hunch is that his immune system was able to kind of hold the virus down for a period of time, and then he, was, he rebounded. I do think, and we did assess his fibrosis. We actually did it with a, a blood test, um, a non-invasive fibrosis marker, and it was minimal. Um, and he decided, I did talk to him about treatment. I, but he decided to defer antiviral therapy uh, in part because of the side effects of peg interferon and not something that he's interested in taking. Um, but it's an interesting case. He did, he was confirmed to have gene type 1A again. There wasn't any evidence um, in terms of a new infection. Now, we were unable to go back and get his original virus. These were all done outside at LabCorp. And I can tell you LabCorp disposes of their samples relatively quickly. There was no bank there. So there was no way to go back and look. Um, anyone do anything? Would you push him for treatment? Minimal uh, fibro short test? Anyone want to push him into therapy? No. I would push. I mean, he's C, <laughs> so he would be highly likely to respond even to peg rival. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, he would respond but, well to it. I mean, I would just give him the numbers, and I mean, he sounds like a busy guy, so maybe he's not ready <laughs> to take time off work. <laughs> Combination of being busy and afraid of interfering. Yeah. Uh, well, let's go on to another case, uh, perhaps at the polar opposite end of the spectrum. 52-year-old man, he's got uh, HIV hepatitis C, gene type 1, diagnosed with HIV in the late 80s, took a uh, number of regimens, but most recently, Darunavir, Ritonavir, Otegvir, plus 3TC. He's got cirrhosis, was actually diagnosed uh, in 2000, treated with two courses of peg interferon arabivirin. The first course was in the APRICOT trial, the original PEG-2A study. He got 800 milligrams of arabivirin. He had a null response. But, you know, we figured he got 800 milligrams of ribavirin, so we treated him again, this time using weight-based, and guess what? No response. So we proved it. Um, and then, uh, so he's been followed every six months, and I've been telling him there'll be new treatment in five years. And now it's been a slow process since, uh, since our last treatment course of waiting for new therapies. But that's what he's been doing, getting imaging, as uh, Marion, I think, pointed out. Well, now, finally, the five years are up, and it's uh, 2011. And we've got a new treatment. So the question is, what would you recommend? Uh, one, uh, so this is a, a genotype 1, HIV-infected, peg ribavirin uh, null responder on antiretroviral therapy. So one is bocephir plus peg ribavirin. Two is telapavir. Three is consensus interferon injections daily plus ribavirin. Four is milk thistle. And five is a careful review of his prior antiretroviral treatment and outcomes. So go ahead and vote. Where's the coffee on this one? <laughs> <laughs> I 
So a lot of people, 56% uh, paid careful attention to Betty's lecture uh, uh, just a minute ago uh, and wanted to review his uh, antiretroviral regimen. We've got 6% uh, with milk thistle. Uh, nobody wants consensus interferon. I think that's about right. Um, and then about 26% want uh, tilapavir, and there's 12% uh, want bocephir. So, uh, well, Betty, let me ask you, he's on darunavir, raltegravir, and 3TC. What, what are your concerns with jumping into therapy? Um, so that regimen tends to imply that he's had some resistance um, to antiretroviral therapy and probably failed. And so I, I still would be concerned about giving tilapavir with boosted darunavir. Like if he could be switched to maybe boosted atazanavir plus raltegavir plus 3TC, that's that would be a possibility. Um, and I would want to wait for the data or else try to enroll him in some clinical trial that's looking at these hepatitis C protease inhibitors plus plus these antiretrovirals. I probably wouldn't do it, although I know a lot of people are sort of doing it. <laughs> okay, and uh, Marion, what's the latest on milk thistle? What's the what? What's the latest, latest on, milk, on thistle? milk thistle? The latest on milk thistle is that the randomized controlled trial showed that it didn't help, but it didn't hurt. And I have patients who swear that just like going to church on Sunday, they're cured. <laughs> and their liver tests look better. So for, I say if they feel better, fine. It doesn't hurt them, except if they get batches that have toxins in them that happens every couple of years in the Bay Area with various poisons that came into the preparation. That's really the only side effect. Except for that cyanide, it's all good. Yeah. So no, I think that uh, there was an NIH-funded trial that compared milk thistle to SIBO, and it didn't have any benefit over a one-year period. Well, let's go on and take a look at what happened. So he did stop his milk thistle. I advised him of that. And uh, he increased his coffee consumption. Uh, I'm a bit biased on this, but uh, I think that there is a significant literature for coffee uh, improving uh, liver outcomes. You can Google it if you don't believe me. Uh, uh, coffee has been linked to better outcomes in, in liver disease, lowering ALT, and in the HALT-C trial, uh, it did actually improve uh, slow progression in outcomes. So I encourage people, if they're going to do a plant, to, be, to go for the coffee bean. <laughs> the coffee bean. Um, so his antiretroviral history was reviewed. It turns out he had not failed prior treatment. Um, it, they wanted to avoid nukes. This was a, one of the phases of uh, sort of, uh, he wanted to avoid nukes. And there was some concern about his kidneys on tenofovir, so that wasn't used. And there was concern about a bacavir and a questionable hypersensitivity when they gave it to him, not well documented. So it turns out that uh, that's why he was on this regimen. Uh, his kidney function is actually normal. His current MELD is 12. Uh, ultrasound revealed no liver mass. His INR is 1.5. His albumin is a little bit low, but uh, near lower than normal. His platelet count is 73,000. So what would you do next? Uh, one is IL-28B genotype testing. Uh, two is change the darunavir to adizanivir and treat with tilapavir. Three is change darunavir to adizanivir and treat with bocephavir. Four is stop his ARVs and treat with tilapia, and five is refer for liver transplant. So go ahead and, uh, and vote. Good
So uh, a near majority, but not quite, for um, changing drunavir to azanavir and treating with tilapavir. If we add that to the Bocephir group, we've got 75% want to uh, adjust his ARVs and treat. Um, about 13% or 12.5 want to IL-28B. Uh, some want to stop his ARVs, and 8% uh, uh, want to refer for transplant. I guess a couple of points here. Um, uh, I'll go back to IL-28B. Any role in a uh, null responder? He's like 14% chance of success. With right? But you know his response. He's a null responder with trust. He's a null responder with cirrhosis. Yeah. So he's is so much in a bad hole. Yeah. And you're going to knock him off by right. treating him. Right. So he's got a 14% chance of success. And maybe, I don't know the numbers because we don't really know, but I would guess twice that chance of needing a transplant. So is that a vote for five? It's a vote uh, for don't do anything. So yeah. vote for don't do anything. Wait anyone else on the anyone else on the panel tree? I think I the only do. other the only other option I would not be a fav in favor of treating him. But the one option that you could have, which I have done in several patients like this, when you feel like you're afraid to wait and you know waiting means 18 months or something, is you could always give him four weeks of peg and riba. The chances are he's going to have a less than one lung decline. And, you and you're going to stop, and you're going to prove that the benefit of adding the triple combination is not going to get him anywhere. But if he can get over that first hump of having a greater than one log decline to peg riba, then you know his chance is actually better than 14%. It's maybe in the, what, 36-something percent range if you're going to translate mononfection to, to co, which, you know. Um, but, but that's the only other way that I see doing this. What about a well, so sure. this was actually, uh, this was about, you know, we're talking about June of 11, so we're still kind of far away from things. Uh, and he's also been known cirrhotic for more than a decade. So a little bit of concern. Plus, I've been telling him for almost 10 years, when something new comes out, we'll treat you. Um, so. And you have transplant as an option at your center. And we do have transplant as an option for HIV-infected patients. So he did switch, and this was his regimen, as Anavir, who remained suppressed. And the plan was to start tilapavir plus peganipirin ribavirin if his insurance companies approved to pay for this, which is a big if. Um, actually, in the state of Maryland, tilapavir and bocephir were approved by our ADAP, but then administratively deferred for the last two and a half years. So it, it is a challenge to get access um, to this medication. So how would you use the tilapavir? Well, uh, Susanna recommended a lead-in with peganipirin ribavirin. Uh, followed by tilapia, 750 or 8 hours. Uh, two is a simultaneous start, the labeled uh, dose of tilapavir. Uh, three is a simultaneous start, but this time using BID dosing to align the tilapavir with this raltegravir uh, based on the optimized trial that was alluded to today. Or four, I don't plan to use it. And we've heard a vote from that in the, from our panel. So go ahead and vote. Uh, one is lead in, two is start with standard. Uh, three times daily, two is a higher dose twice daily, and four is don't use it. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> How is that possible? Must wow. Be. <laughs> so, uh, well, let me start with uh, uh, Q12 hours. So, uh, Betty, I'll start with you. Uh, Q, the, the data on 11.25 every 12 hours. Um, so we, so the data looks good when compared uh, 1125 Q12 to 750 Q8 for just 
treatment naive patients, not on any not HIV patients. So we have no data in terms of this patient if he's on atazanavir, whether those levels would be appropriate. My guess is maybe, so I don't know. <laughs> so I, I mean, I have no idea. Yeah. But otherwise, if they weren't on um, any other concomitant medications, I would definitely do 1125Q12 because the data looks very good and also decreases the pill burden and the fat content, et cetera. So for him, being HIV positive cirrhotic. on azanavir cirrhotic, you, you would opt to go with the standard I, Q8 hour? Yeah, until I know better. Okay. But that's me. Anyone else want to do lead-in? Uh, Susanna's already put her uh, I mean, chips yeah, down. I like the idea of, of lead-in. I would probably be more towards, I'm not sure I would treat this guy right now, but um, if, you know, the relationship you have and you kind of been promising to do something, if you were going to do it, I would, I would do the lead-in because uh, I would want to stop if you didn't have a one log decrease, and you know it's important if you're going to treat patients like this. You know, play with seventy-three thousand's got poor hypertension that you have uh, backup, and have if it's if you're not a hepatologist that your hepatologist know you're embarking on this and having a clear discussion with the patient because there are risks to, to in starting this. So let's go on. So he, uh, I will say he actually, this, this individual has been seen by our transplant team. We tend to refer our HIV-infected patients when they hit a melt of 12 early, but nonetheless, we, we tend to refer there. And has been seen by one of our hepatologists, had an upper endoscopy, and, and is on the list. He's actually on the list both at University of Pittsburgh as well as Hopkins, because for a while we weren't doing HIV livers and needed a backup plan. But he's been on the list for, for years and just not moved up. So we did start. We did a simultaneous start um, every eight hours plus pegonitrin and arabivir. After two weeks, he was less than 43, but detected. After four weeks, he was not detected. Um, fatigued, irritable, but quite happy with his response. He's, you see his hemoglobin of 9.6, platelet count of 29,000. So what would you do next? Stop therapy, start EPO and ultrompopag, reduce riba and peg, or do all of the above. The kitchen sink is number four. <laughs> reduce and add growth factors. So stop growth factors, reduce, or all of the above. How many weeks? He's at four weeks. That was the week four. He's RNA not detected, despite the cynicism on this audience. He did respond. <laughs> uh, so 76 percent. He doesn't have ascites yet. <laughs> not yet. Hold on. No. Uh, 76 percent want to reduce uh, the doses. Um, some want to stop, uh, probably the same ones that didn't want to start in the first place. 8% um, <laughs> uh, want to use Ultronpec and EPO in, the, in some ones. So this is, I think, is very consistent with what, what David had presented earlier, uh, so I won't belabor this and we'll move on. Uh, so he does reduce uh, both his peg interferon, that was designed in part because of his platelet count, but also because in this interferon does contribute to the anemia. and. Uh, lower dose interferon can help with the anemia a bit, and we reduced his rabivirin to 600. After eight weeks, it remains not detected. His hemoglobin falls a bit further. Platelet count remains stable, bouncing between 25 and 42. He did add EPO uh, at 40,000 IU per week. At week 10, he develops a rash. It's a moderate rash, uh, something to complain about, but nothing uh, to really uh, that would lead us to stop. He finished his tilapvir, thrilled to be off of it. It was not an enjoyable experience. And at week 24, he's still on PEG at 90, Rabivarin at 600, 
HCVRNA is not detected, so he hasn't had a breakthrough after stopping tilapia. And he's cruising along. We're about six weeks away from finishing a 48-week treatment course. I send him for his every six-month imaging study. And every so often, I'll throw in a CAT scan or MRI. And I decided to get a CAT scan. No particular reason, just decided it was time for a CAT scan. A 1.6-centimeter lesion, uh, which our radiologists were quite confident was a new hepatocellular carcinoma. So this is a difficult clinic visit coming up. What would you recommend? Uh, TACE, transarterial chemomization. Uh, two, a radiofrequency ablation. Three, transplant. Four, surgical resection. Or five, both TACE and transplant. Go ahead and vote. Assuming that you have transplant as an option near you. So about, I guess, almost 75% want to uh, get transplant involved with or without uh, chemoembolization, and uh, about 16% want surgical resection. So uh, Marion, let me ask you, I know you're chatting with David, but let me ask you, uh, how would you manage uh, this individual? So you, you shouldn't do surgical resection because he has portal hypertension, and he has a very high risk of decompensating. So the surgeons wouldn't chop it out. Um, he should have a transplant evaluation and a taste, but he can't get points for cancer until his tumor is two centimeters. So you have to let the tumor grow to get the points, then do the taste, and then he's automatically increased every three months and he gets a liver transplant. If you do the taste now, he won't get HCC points and therefore he may go many, many more years, and by then he'll have a new cancer. So we should. So a, a tad, potentially a tad illogical, but uh, nonetheless. Uh, the well, that's what we do. We wait yep. a few, wait three months, repeat it. And... Okay. Well, let's. Uh, other comments on this one? Well, let's go on and see what uh, happens. So he's referred for transplant. His tumor is allowed to grow. The patient didn't quite see that as logical, and we had some long discussions about the idea we'd let this malignancy grow, but nonetheless we did. And we ended up repeating a scan about eight weeks later, pretty early, uh, but our radiologist used a flexible uh, centimeter ruler, and it, it stretched uh, to two centimeters pretty promptly, uh, and he got the meld tumor points applied. And then he did undergo taste, had an outstanding response. He completed 48 weeks of therapy. We actually decided to continue the peg interferon rivaviron through this, but now he's, quote, finished his treatment. And the uh, transplant team is telling me he's near the top. He's stable. His CBC is stable. So the next question is, so here we are. We finished 48 weeks of therapy. His RNA is not detected. And he's on the transplant list. So what would you do next? Stop. He's finished his peg rivaviron. Uh, two, continue the peg rivaviron until transplant. Three is stop rivaviron, continue peg until transplant. Or four is add bocephalvir to the peg rivaviron. What would you do? Go ahead and vote. So one is to stop everything because he's done. Uh, three, continue peg and inferior rivaviron. And three is to stop rivaviron, continue the peg. And four is add bocephalvir. So about 76% want to stop everything because he's completed his course of therapy. 17% uh, want to continue peg rivaviron. Uh, no one wants to have bocephalvir. So let me, uh, uh, Susanna, what would you do? So I think, in the, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't take care of transplant patients, but the 
bottom line is obviously if he goes to transplant, he's going to send it. His chance um, is actually much better if he doesn't have active bacteria. And he has been undetectable since week four, which means I think his risk of relapse is very low. But I'm, I'm going to be totally honest, I'm not sure the decision that a transplant provider would make in saying continue him on therapy so that he's undetectable going in the door to his transplant. And uh, I mean, these guys take care of transplants, and I don't. I'm just thinking about a case where um, the patient was negative, got a liver offer at um, sort of week 24-ish, and so got transplanted and didn't have hep C recurrence, which I see now as the major threat post-transplant. Um, so I'm a little bit biased, perhaps, towards um, considering an alternative, although clearly that's not necessarily the, the right answer. <laughs> So, well, so I don't think there is a right answer. Oh, there's no right answer. But for live donors, we continue till the day of transplant so because Mary, the stakes are so high. So what if we did stop and now at week 52, his viral load is back at 650,000? He's had a rebound. What would that do to him just in terms of transplant? Would he... Uh, maybe well, that turns him from somebody who's got a 100% chance of having virus post-transplant and a one in three chance of dying from his recurrent hep C, whereas if you'd left him on the poison and he went in negative, he had a very low chance of being positive. Well, let me uh, take the question at the microphone. I'm sorry, I need a reality check about the whole waiting till two centimeters thing. I'm sorry? Uh, Wait, this well, is the good. United Organ Network sharing rules for the United States that prior to five, I can't remember how many years ago, a few years ago, patients with hepatocellular carcinoma couldn't get to transplant because they had no, uh, they didn't have a high meld. So they would be waiting for transplant but never get one. Therefore, they brought in a set of rules to say how patients with cancer could advance on the list as if they had an elevated meld. On the other side is an enormous amount of data saying that patients who go to transplant but only have a, an un, a tiny lesion under two centimeter have the same outcome as patients without hepatocellular carcinoma. So they did not give meld points for patients with tumors under two centimeters because those outcomes were the same as patients without cancer over the last 15 years. My apologies. The whole idea of transplant, I'm, sometimes people want to avoid. So why don't we just give them taste and see if there's a new treatment for hepatocellular carcinoma that happens along the road? So why, have, why do the whole that, transplant? That's an option. Okay, because it just sounds very strange to me to. But let the thing grow. that's interesting in him is he's not behaving like the single, un, less than two centimeter lesion that would have sat there for months or years. His was actually growing, yeah. and therefore, if you'd waited, given serafinib or other medications which prolong your life a few weeks, would not have benefited him. So he was very lucky to be exactly in the situation to take advantage of the milled points. And there's a big yeah. argument that a lot of the people want to change those rules because they say they, too, they adva ad advantage, give too much of an advantage to patients with cancer against patients with decompensated disease. Okay. 
So that, that is the, uh, so he did continue his pegatoferrin ribavir. The, the risk of rebound was just too great. The patient was not interested in taking that risk. Cirrhotic patients do tend to relapse. He did have a transplant. Unfortunately, the first one didn't work. It was a primary non-function. I got a second liver and is doing actually extremely well. Uh, it's now about uh, six months out. RNA is not detected. ALT is in the 20s uh, and doing great, uh, doing absolutely fabulous with respect to his uh, liver transplant with no hepatitis C. So I think that's uh, actually my last slide. So we'll stop on that uh, feel-good story, which is a true story. Um, uh, and uh, let me see if there's any other comments from our panel or questions from the floor. We are running a tad over. Any other comments from the group? There are a couple of questions coming up. So we'll try to do these. Uh... So the question was about uh, vitamin D. Uh, what's our panel think about vitamin D in liver disease? <laughs> All those four? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a correlation, and um, clearly liver disease is associated with lower uh, vitamin D levels and vitamin D, lower vitamin D levels are associated with lower response rates to interferon-based therapies. I find that it's such kind of benign thing to replenish. Why not do it? And um, I know there's been pushback from various other fields on vitamin D, but I think for our patients, uh, why not? And we've added vitamin D levels to our patient panels. So when we're evaluating our hepatitis patients, we check vitamin D routinely, and when it's low, we replete it. I think that's... That being um, said, there is practice variation at our institution on this question. That's, some are not believers in the data. And also, and also that there's natural variation in vitamin D levels. So our normal vitamin D levels are lower in the winter than the summer, and we we often forget that. Especially in Boston. Especially for these guys. Yeah, yeah. Boston. Yeah. And it's in San Francisco. Mm. Yeah. Huh. Is there a certain level of... Just normal. I, I've just always uh, aimed for the normal range. I've not, uh, I've not pushed beyond that. Is, do you have a? Do you have a yeah. yeah. 30. So 30. 30. 30. 30. I try to get them. 30. Other comments or a field? Well, if not, I'd like to thank our panelists and uh, turn it back over to.